Join me in 1 Peter chapter 5. Use that gospel song if you have young children in your home. It was written to catechize. It was written to include the basics of the plan of redemption so that with a simple melody it could be ingrained in the mind easily. We're coming towards the end of our study in 1 Peter. Figuring out what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ, even in a world that may not be as excited about following Jesus as we are. Uh, To put it as an understatement. Last week, our text challenged the pastors to humbly care for harassed sheep. Today, that call of humility spreads out and touches all of us so that it's not just the pastors, the elders who need to be reminded to humbly care for sheep, but rather all of us as sheep need to hear this call of humility. And so consider 1 Peter chapter 5, just three verses, verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. As followers of Jesus Christ, you should live in evident humility, meaning you and those around you should recognize the humility that marks your life. Evident humility. We're told to be subject to, we're told to clothe ourselves with humility because God gives grace to the humble So humble yourselves. Clearly it rises to the surface in just three verses. Humility is essential in the pilgrim journey. Should be clear. So do other people think of you as a humble person? With whatever personality type and other strengths you may have, are those strengths carried in humility? I think our text, if we consider it this morning, will help us evaluate our humility. So I wanted to shape the outline not as just declarative statements, but as these questions that we can ask ourselves to to see if indeed humility is being evidenced in our lives. So here are these questions. And don't think you need to nail down an answer right now, but let this, be, let this be a meditation on this Lord's Day of where the improvement needs to come. Do any of these questions reveal something of pride that needs to be dealt with? Are we humble people? Let's consider five questions to evaluate our humility. Number one, do I struggle with submission? Do I struggle with submission? The way we answer this question would be an indication of whether we are proud or not. 
You see, it's not separate issues. There's this issue of submission to authority, and there's this other issue of pride versus humility. No, they, they go together. They're related. The pride of life, 1 John 2, 15, makes it clear that, that that's a root cause of a lot of the stuff that we deal with in our lives. And so the text begins after admonishing shepherds to care for the flock of God in humility. Our text begins with the word likewise. With a similar exhortation, he now challenges another crowd. You who are younger. Can I see your hands? <laughs> right? Some of you are like, uh, sure, if that's all it takes to be counted as young. Uh, who, who are these younger people that are told to be subject to the elders? And I think we're still in the context of the shepherds, the pastor elders. It's not purely just younger people respect the older people. That, that would be valid as uh, uh, living out the one another's. But here, having just addressed the elders, I think he is saying be subject to that pastoral authority which we just addressed. Be subject to them. And that word be subject to, this word for submission, simply means to arrange under. So some of you were at Colonel Dave's retirement ceremony. Others of you have served in the reserves or armed forces or frankly even just in the workplace with a boss. We understand rank. We understand positions of authority that aren't handed out simply because somebody's a better person. They're more valuable. They're more of a person. That's not the point. It's simply the rank, the order of things. And this word for submission doesn't speak to the quality of your personhood, but rather just the way that you find your rank, your position in authority. So he says, likewise, you who are younger, arrange yourselves under those who are in authority. That's that word, be subject to. But why the special charge to the younger? Well, I think Peter is acknowledging that there is a danger to what we think of as youthful energy and zeal. There's a readiness to cast off the old ways in the spirit of liberation and enlightenment. We know better than the old folks who are stuck in the old ways. Or we're going to free ourselves from the restriction of the old ways. Read about Marxism. Read about Nazi Germany. Read about so many movements of the world that have tried to recruit the young generation to harness that zeal and steer it in a direction. There is a biblical direction for youthful zeal. The wisdom literature tells us, let them bear the weight, that yoke, in their youth. Peter is simply saying, let that be channeled in the right direction. Line up that energy under authority and watch it really excel. Peter would just warn us in the common phrase, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The reality is the bathwater needs to go. Nobody's opposed to throwing out bathwater. We just don't want the baby going with it. So change can be good. 
and the next generation rising up is good. That's the way God designed it. Make sure it doesn't violate God's principles of authority. God designed that. Authority isn't bad. Bad authority is bad. Authority is not. And so the younger are to hear this special admonition, be subject to the elders, and then Peter gets on really from that transition from the last paragraph to this paragraph, and now he wants to make his point. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So after we ask the question, do I struggle with submission? And if I do, Peter says, well, here's the answer. Submit to that God-given authority. Bring your energy under the authority of your God-given authority. So if you're a teenager and you have all kinds of energy and ideas and you want to be independent, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but bring all of that energy and all those ideas under your God-given authority. As the Bible structures marriage, we see that a wife can have incredible gifts and strengths that in some ways may be very different from her husband's. And that's not a problem. We're not talking about more quiet, more loud. We're we're just saying whoever you are as a wife, channel that energy and your gifts under the God-given authority. That's what the Bible says. It does nothing to shut down personhood of a teenager to live under the authority of their parents. A wife isn't shut down by living under the authority of her husband. And nor should you as an employee be shut down under the authority of your boss, unless he's not a very good boss and isn't realizing his task should be to make you shine in your gifts. Submit to God-given authority if you're struggling with submission. But here's the second question that now... Peter says, this is for all of you. It's not even just the younger. This is for all of you. And the question is this, do I overlook others' needs? You might want to move the apostrophe on your notes if you're a grammarian, all right? Do I overlook others' needs? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. This word, clothe yourselves, is is a unique word. It means to tie on. And the implication is like an apron. Uh, You know, you're going out to, to, to grill and you've got your barbecue all ready to go. And so you might not necessarily put on old clothes, but you'll pull on an apron to protect your clothing. So here's this apron, but it's it's made into a verb. And so it's to put on or tie on this robe or apron. Essentially, it's a made-up word. Peter, from his experience, made up this verb about putting on an apron in order to serve. It's not anywhere else in the Bible, and as far as we know, it's not anywhere else in extra-biblical Greek literature. Peter literally just, like, made it up for us. Pastors are known for doing this, making up words that kind of just capture some idea. Well, the thought then is, where did Peter get this word that's so picturesque that he decided, I'm just going to make it a word, tying on an apron in order to serve others? 
And I think it was one of these vivid memories that Peter had. It's recorded for us in John chapter 13. On that night, the disciples came into the upper room and Peter, along with all the others, marched into the room more concerned about who was going to be the guest of honor. One of those guests would sit on Jesus' right, the other would sit on his left. We know as the story unfolds that one of those positions was given to John, called the disciple whom Jesus loved, and the other was given to the honored guest of Jesus, Judas Iscariot. The rest are scattered around the three-sided table. But they all came in, and as the theme of the night was, arguing about who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. That argument's going to continue on the road to Gethsemane. Kind of ignoring whatever happened there in the upper room, they're still stuck on, am I better than everybody else? And, and who's going to serve me? Who's going to be the greatest? So Peter walked right past the slave apron hanging on the hook by the door because everybody's racing to get a good seat. He cared little about serving others. And I'm sure Peter remembered that hot feeling of awkward shame when Jesus, it says in John 13, rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. We know Peter squirmed in this moment because the text says, after he washed the other disciples' feet, then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said, no, you're not going to wash my feet. The guilt was already setting in. He, he knew he, he should have done that. Somebody should have done it other than Jesus. And there's a dialogue between Jesus and Peter that is instructive for us. But, but just know, Peter felt in that moment this, this awkwardness, this shame, this guilt, because it shouldn't have been Jesus doing that. But Peter well remembered Jesus rising from supper laying aside his garment that distinguished him as the teacher and putting on that slave apron in order to serve the disciples by just washing their feet, a, a kind of common practice. And so here, Peter captures that whole night and all of his feelings about it by making up this word to put on the slave apron in order to serve others. And it works out into our text as clothe yourselves with humility or put on the garment of humility. In Peter's mind, it's obviously a virtue, a spirit, a way of thinking that serves others, but the word itself is very picturesque of an actual event when Jesus did exactly what he wanted his disciples to do. He tells them that after he washed their feet, he says, look what I've done for you. You should do this to others. Now, some denominations take that literally in the sense of we should wash feet. And so foot washing is a part of a service. Almost like an ordinance of the Lord's Supper or baptism. But Jesus wasn't speaking of the exact act of just washing feet. He was saying this should be your spirit. Not of competing for who's the greatest, 
But for who's going to be first to do the dirty work? Who's going to do the low tasks of serving? And while we don't do foot washing in our church and in our families, we all wash dishes and do laundry and sweep floors. And we all know that all those things can kind of be left for whoever's willing to do it. And so as the saying goes, there's always room at the bottom. If you want to serve, you will never lack for a task. Because usually everybody's competing for the positions of honor, for the best seat at the table. And in this case, it was Jesus himself who models for us the heart of a servant. The question we need to ask ourselves is, do I overlook others' needs? You see, our text reflects that upper room scene where Christ's humility was directed toward each of his disciples. He knelt before each one of them and washed their feet. Imagine the drama in Judas's mind as Jesus kneels before him and washes his feet. There's the picture. And here our text says something similar. Clothe yourself with the slave apron and do that toward one another, the text says. Be clothed in humility toward one another. So if we looked into the closet of your heart, would we find that well-worn slave apron? Do you have one of these in your closet? You know where it is. Is it stained from much use? Or do you tend to overlook others' needs? The solution is look for opportunities to serve. What needs to be done? Now, this is practical household stuff. Applies to the workplace, but there's also a spiritual element here. In this being clothed in humility toward one another, it's, it's asking yourself, what can I do to help that person be successful in God's eyes? When God looks at them and he sees, oh, there's this flaw. He seems a little angry at times. Then I go to my brother, and in order to serve him, I'm going to say, hey, sometimes I see you kind of flying off the handle. Like, what do you think God wants you to do with that? I serve him by helping him be successful in his Christian walk. Jesus looked around the room and realized feet needed to be washed. So he did whatever it took to meet that need. A few hours later, he looks around the world and sees there's sin to be dealt with, and he dies on the cross to provide forgiveness for sin, but it's really the same act. It's the same antenna. It's what needs to be done for them. I'm willing to do it. Look for opportunities to serve. It won't always be easy, but it will always be Christ-like. And before you see Christ crucified as the Savior, you see him humbled as the servant in Philippians 2. First, there's this humbling, taking on the form of a servant. And then, as a servant, he's obedient, and that obedience leads to the cross. But it's the servant Christ who becomes the saving Christ. God may not ask you to save anybody, but he's asked you to serve everybody. Be clothed with humility toward one another. 
Do I overlook the needs of others? Number three, do I forget about daily grace? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, and here's why. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think we tend to underestimate God opposes the proud, and we underestimate he gives grace to the humble. So are we really people who recognize grace? Or are we too proud? Are we assuming it was me that because I'm a good worker, I got the promotion? Or because I'm a good parent, my kids are obedient? Or because this, because me, 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 this is why I live the life I live? Or do we recognize grace everywhere? Are we humble people that recognize grace? But feel the weight of these words. God opposes the proud. In the Old Testament, this word is used to describe armies. Think of David being sent by Jesse to deliver cheese and food to his brothers. They're in the Israelite army. They're on one side of the valley up on the mountain. The Philistines are on the other side, and Goliath is making his challenge. And the text says they set the battle in array, meaning they lined up with all their swords and spears, and the other guys lined up, and they kind of stared each other down. That same word for setting the battle in array is this word for opposing. In other words, God lines up against you. It's not just that he won't give grace and and help. It's that he opposes you. He's going to make sure that you don't get where you think you want to go. If you're proud, you face the resistance of God. God resists the proud. He sets himself up in front in his display of strength and basically defies you to go ahead and say that you're stronger, you're better. Go ahead and flash your shield and your sword and think you can do it on your own. But that doesn't end well. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, proud people don't talk much about grace. They don't see it. They only see themselves and their successes. They forget what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am by the grace of God. What do I have that I haven't received? This is the spirit of humble people. And they are the recipients then of much grace. Recognize your need for grace. It may not always be as evident because in some cases you're immediately outmatched. Circumstances bulldoze you right over and you're laying flat on your back looking up at the heavens and think now's a good time to pray for help because I just got flattened by life. Other times you're just kind of going through the motions. You're coasting. It feels like life is downhill. It's just easy. Even your Christian experience is just kind of sweet and easy. But Peter is saying, Don't forget that you need grace because God resists the proud even if they're proud just because they've received a lot of grace and life is good. 
Recognize your need for grace. And in this verse, Peter actually quotes the wisdom of Proverbs. Chapter 3, verse 34, where Solomon writes, Toward the scorners, God is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. That's that Old Testament language of opposing and grace, scorning and favor. God will scorn the scornful, and he'll shower with favor those who feel like they don't deserve it. So a warning and a promise. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Hear both this coming week. And recognize your need for grace. Is the workplace going to present its challenges for you, the pilgrim, the minority, the exile, who isn't flying all the colors of God's rainbow this month? Then if that's challenging, recognize your need for grace. Is it hard to be married? Well, not always. But because of self, myself or herself, life can be hard. So recognize your need for grace. Are you uncertain about what the future holds? Take the job, make the move, have more kids, spend the money, whatever. It, recognize your need for grace. Nowhere does the Bible say you better get it all together and be competent so God can use you. No, he says just recognize your need for grace and he's ready to shower you with his favor. A fourth question to evaluate your humility. Do you have a small view of God? To which we might say, of course not. Well, let me ask you then, how did your big view of God humble you this week? What was the big thought about God that made you feel real small? And in your smallness, realizing I had best trust this God because he's great and I'm small. Speaking in size terms. So I should trust him. Humble yourselves, verse 6 says, therefore... So in light of what we just heard, the wisdom of the Proverbs, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What's the conclusion? Therefore, humble yourself. It's interesting. It's a passive, which probably means we could interpret this, be humbled by something. Be humbled by the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourself under. We've already heard under. It was in that word to be subject to. Line yourself up under the authority. Now it's not only the authority, but it's the authority that is expressed as a mighty hand. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Be yielded to it. Be ready to do its will. As that hand moves, so you move. Isaiah 66 and verse 2, God says this, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God says, here's the one I'm going to favor. Here's the one I'm going to use. Here's the one I'm going to bless. It's the one who humbles himself. 
finds his place under my mighty hand, recognizes my word and trembles at it, yields to it. In other words, the lesson is this. God has the big covered. So you focus on the small. God has being king down. He's got that. You take care of being servant to the king. John the Baptist said it this way. He must increase. I must decrease. So stop trying to make yourself into somebody. You're supposed to make Christ look like a somebody. But do that by just being a nobody. Serve people. Show them how Christ served in the upper room washing feet. Show them how Christ served ultimately by providing forgiveness of sins at the cross. Humble yourself. Make yourself small. The word humility is often the very word for being low-minded. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Carpet-minded. The lowest thing in the room. We're spilling crumbs on it. We're dropping coffee crumb or spilling coffee on it. We're treading in from outside who knows what on the carpet. It catches it all because it's the lowest thing here. We walk all over it and it doesn't complain. It just does what it does. It's carpet. We're supposed to be carpet-minded, low-minded. Stop thinking of yourself as somebody who deserves good treatment from everybody in the room. Be done with being offended when you're not treated like a somebody that you think you are. Low-minded people don't take offense. They don't deserve any better. And if it really is an offense, they give it over to God anyway. They trust Him with it. And the great hope of being low-minded is to keep seeing a bigger and bigger God. Be humbled by the mighty hand of God. The solution is rediscover the sovereignty of God. Go to the word and be taught his bigness, his majesty, his holiness, his kindness, his judgment, his wrath, his mercy, his providence. In our verse, you humble yourself under a God who has an all-powerful hand and an all-wise timetable. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Okay, we can understand that. God is God and we're not. But the text also says, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now some commentators want to jump right to the end, the glory that's to be revealed. Certainly that will be an exaltation. But I don't think that's exclusively the case. God can exalt you and bless you in any way in this life as well, but that's in his timetable. So you are yielding yourself to one who is all-powerful and to one who is all-wise. Do you have a small view of God? It'll be evident in your pride, but a big view of God should humble us. And that humility that should be evident in our lives, will flow from this view of a big God. And once you see who God is and all his power and all his promise, you'll be equipped to deal with the last question. Do I hold on to worry? Do I hold on to worry? Are you an anxious person? Do you stew on things a lot? 
Worry is a faith problem. It isn't harmless. It begins with veiled pride that says, well, I need to figure this out. I just need to fix it. I need to take care of this. I got a lot on my plate. Veiled pride. But it keeps growing into independence and introspection, saying, oh, this is so hard. This is so bad. What will happen to me if something doesn't change? And, and we're worrying, but it's, it's introspective. It's about me. And it's independent. It's still up to me to do something to fix it. And then it blossoms into skepticism and doubt of God's goodness and faithfulness. And while most people that you know don't say things like, I'm not sure God's faithful anymore, they do say things like, why is this happening? Why did God allow this? Why is God doing this to me? And most often it's the fruit of the root of worry. In Exodus chapter 17, the people of Israel are just literally weeks removed from the 10 plagues of Egypt. They watched God decimate Egypt while they stayed protected in their little land of Goshen as in their neighborhood of Egypt there. And then after the 10th plague, they march out of Egypt with all their stuff and all the Egyptians' riches. Remember, they're loaded down with all this gold and all the jewels of Egypt. So they march out of Egypt and they get to the sea. And now they're in trouble because it looks like Pharaoh changed his mind and he's chasing after them. And God says, don't worry, just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And he parts the sea and they cross on dry ground. They get to the other side and the Egyptians follow them and God lets the waters that it says stood up in a heap. So the water kept flowing, but it just piled up. We, we can't even fathom it. And he drowns the Egyptians and it says their bodies washed up on the shore. An obvious victory that God gave to the Israelites. And now he says, believe me, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. So they take off walking. And what could be measured in days later, we come to Exodus 17, and they're, they're, they're worrying about food and already concluding that they ate a lot better back in Egypt as slaves and, and we don't have water to drink. And their worry goes from the veiled pride of, well, we need to figure this out. How are we going to feed everybody? To the full-blown skepticism in Exodus 17, verse 7. With antagonism, they say this to Moses. Is the Lord among us or not? Like, where is he? What's he doing if he's on a throne? Can he give us some food down here? Is he with us or not? That doesn't sound like a harmless sin of just being an anxious person. That sounds like you sure know better. And it starts with, I have to figure this out. I've got a lot on my plate. But it ends with, you know what? Fine, I'll just do it my way because it doesn't seem like God cares to help. Is he among us or not? Is it any wonder that we read in the text of Exodus that God sometimes says, Moses, just step back. I'm just going to destroy them all. In the New Testament language, that would be 
grieving the Holy Spirit of God. When you leave the worship service and go into a week of anxious worry, why doesn't God just say, step back, people. Let me deal with this unbelief once and for all. You see, when we link worry to unbelief, to skepticism about God's goodness and his promise, it becomes a little bit more of an important matter that fits into our conversation here about being a humble person. The solution is trust God with your problems. After all, the text says, he cares for you. The language may be a little less personal. It may be it becomes a matter to him. Cast all your cares on him for that will show up on his to-do list. He cares enough, it is personal, to make it a matter of his agenda to deal with your problem, to give you the grace that you need, to fix it sometimes or to help you endure it. But it will become a matter to God. So trust God with your problems. And it's interesting, this word for casting defies stewing and worrying. It's used one other time in the New Testament. It says they took off their coats and cast them onto the colt so that Jesus could ride on the colt down the valley and up into Jerusalem at that triumphal entry. I assure you they weren't hanging on to their coats as Jesus rode, sitting on them, right? A donkey carrying Jesus and dragging four or five people on either side, hanging on to their coat. No, the idea was they gave their coat for the saddle and it was gone. They let it go. If you're casting your cares to Jesus, you're letting them go. You're saying, you're going to have to do this because I can't. But it requires a humble person to do that. Proud people say, no, I can do it. I can do it. And your four-year-old is, is proud when he's fumbling with shoelaces that he's never tried before and keeps saying, I can do this. And when he stands up, there's this loose wad of string that has nothing to do with being tight. Really, it was just the expression of pride thinking, I can do this, when you knew full well he couldn't yet. Casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. The psalmist in Psalm 55, 22 said it this way, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Interesting words in that Old Testament that give us this picture. Cast the burden that seems to be crushing you to the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be crushed by their burdens but you have to give it to him. So here's a burden you can't lift and you're supposed to give it to him. It's a burden that's crushing you, but the promise is, oh no, it'll never crush you. The Lord will never let the righteous be crushed. So be very careful when you're tempted to think that whatever that greatest, most pressing, most hurtful, most fearful problem is in your life, the thing that causes you the most weight don't believe 
that it can crush you if you cast it to him. Now let me close by connecting humility and worry with the weightiness of the grammar of our text. It is laid out in such a way that hopefully you'll, you'll never think of humility the same again. We often think of worry as, as kind of a sad, kind of pathetic, helpless state. And, and the worrier is just an, a needy person. They're weak. They just, they just need comfort or help. We should pity the worrier, right? Because they're just assaulted by all these things. But the Bible is more blunt, more true, and thus more helpful. It says the worrier is actually too proud and independent. He needs to be called to humility and faith. Look how the text unfolds. Verse 6 is the command. Humble yourselves. So that's our simple sentence. It's really the verb, humble yourselves. There's a couple phrases there that tell us a few things. That's how language works. We add those phrases. But for now, we can set the rest of the verse aside and just focus on that verb, humble yourselves. Then we get to verse 7, because verse 6 probably has a comma at the end of it in your Bible. The thought continues. Humble yourselves, casting your cares on him. I could say to you, we got ready this morning by ironing our clothes, brushing our hair, by eating breakfast, and by driving to church. Those four kind of verbs are actually participles that all describe the one main verb, we got ready. By doing this, by doing this, by doing this, we don't have a list in our text. We have one way expressed to us on how we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt us in due time. And the one way that we're told to do it is by casting our cares on him. If you keep your cares, it's your own fault. You're a proud, arrogant person who doesn't trust God. That's the weight of the grammar here. It's just, we can never look at worry again and say, I'm just a worry, I'm, I'm, I'm just a person with a weak composition, I'm just an anxious person. In the spiritual realm, those, that doesn't fly. Because the text says, here's how you humble yourself. And it's by completely casting your cares. If you want to be drugged by the donkey through the valley, hanging onto your coat, well, that's one way to try to live the Christian life. But it's not casting your cares. It's not letting them go. It's not giving them to Jesus and saying, I trust you with this. Humble yourself by casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Why is that there? It's because if you don't humble yourself by casting your cares, you think he doesn't care. So you'll care for yourself the best way you can with or without him. Is God among us or not? I don't know. So I'm just going to do it my own way as best I can. 
Peter's point is, this is a bigger issue than we think. We worry about things because we're proud people who aren't ready to see if God can handle our cares. And he says, the very way you humble yourself isn't by doing some act of penance or insulting yourself or thinking little of yourself. It's by casting your cares on him. Now, Medically speaking, you know, there are ter- the term anxiety is used, and I, I can't speak to that in this moment. I'm not a medical doctor who addresses chemical imbalances. If there's some label for that, that's fine. I'm not saying it won't interact with your spiritual condition. But I'm saying for most of us who just generally toss around the ideas of anxiety and worry in the realm of the, the, the mind and the spiritual battles, We need to come to this text and realize the war is raging. And the battle is against the faithfulness of God and his promises to us. And if we yield to worry and to anxiety, we're actually appealing to our own pride. We're saying, I know somebody who will handle this. We roll up the sleeves and we dive in because we're not sure really casting cares to him will really accomplish anything. I have a better hope of accomplishing myself. And that's pride. So humble yourself by casting your cares on him. Proud people don't ask God to deal with it because they're too busy dealing with it themselves. Proud people worry because... They're carrying the weight of responsibility of making sure everything works out for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But sadly, they aren't really carrying that weight. The weight's crushing them. It's not a weight they can hold, a weight they can bear. That's that's God's responsibility to work all things out for good. So in three short verses, five questions that force us to evaluate our humility. Do I struggle with submission? Do I overlook others' needs? Do I forget about daily grace? Do I have a small view of God? Do I hold on to worry? Peter says, tie on the slave apron because God loves serving people. He loves those humble people, but he opposes the proud. So humble yourself and serve. What are you afraid of? Well, we're afraid people will take advantage of us. We'll do all the serving and that'll make other people lazy. We have all these reasons, but I think what we're really afraid of, maybe we're afraid of we'll be too humble. God will give too much grace? Is that the problem? Of course not. So I'll tell you what you're afraid of. You're afraid of trusting God with your cares. This is the battle. It's a battle of faith. Who is God and who am I? And if I look at this rightly through the eyes of Scripture, I will know who is more capable of dealing with the issues of my life. And so before this day is done, start casting your 
cares on him, who cares for you and has demonstrated that care through the giving of his son for us. Perhaps even as we partake of the, the bread and the cup, we'll be reminded we can trust the God who designed this plan. If he was willing to give up his own son for us, how will he not freely give us all things? And so, Heavenly Father, humble us at the thought of who you are and what you've done for us. In these coming moments, search our hearts and weed out the pride that is there. Bring comfort to us as we realize that we can rest in you. Strengthen our faith and ready us for the battle as the devil will certainly bombard us this week with many opportunities of self-reliance, of independence, of pride. But we want to defeat all of that in the name of Jesus and for his sake. So help us to that end, we pray in his name. Amen.